ISIS is down to one small village. The PA is feeling the pinch of its pay-to-slay policy. Anti-Semitism hits France hard. And a super cool-looking Israeli moon lander launches successfully from Cape Canaveral. I'm Winston R. Holland, and this is Mideast News Brief. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number four of Mideast News Brief. We made it! (laughs) As the saying goes, one time is luck, two times is coincidence, and three times is skill. At least that's true in successful Taekwondo techniques, as is told to my boys. But I'm pretty sure that does not apply to podcasting. Great to have you guys with us. A lot to get to as normal. Um, A million things I could get to as normal. Really, instead of a one-hour show once a week, I feel like I need a five-hour show five days a week or seven days a week or something because it's truly amazing how much news is just continually pumped out. But we do our best here to gather it all, to divide and conquer, and get the best, most interesting, most relevant news to all of you wonderful listeners. I'm excited this week because, as I've talked about the previous few weeks, we keep seeing good news come out of the Middle East. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this again and again and again. There's a silver lining. There's good stuff that's going on. Yes, there's a Syrian civil war. Yes, there's a war in Yemen. Yes, Iran is just a menace to the area. Yes, human rights violations are all over the Middle East. I'm not even going to pretend to say otherwise. That being said, there are some great things that are going on as well. So we don't want to ignore the bad news. I know it's there. But we also want to acknowledge the good news. And the good news right now is as this podcast is being recorded, ISIS is literally down to one small village, defending one small village. Now, it's quite possible that that village has fallen at the time of this broadcast. The best information I could get was from about 19 hours ago. So forgive me if by the time this is published, ISIS has actually fallen officially. And again, just because ISIS falls geographically does not mean that there will still not be lone wolf terrorists that come up and, of course, try to wreak havoc and and promote their evil ideology. But what it does mean is they don't have a geographic location. They don't have a geographic base. That's really, really, really bad for your claim that you're any kind of a caliphate, which is, of course, going to hurt your PR in recruiting terrorists. So they need to fall. The Syrian Democratic Forces, YPG, I'm going to get into that a little bit because there's some confusing acronyms with the SDF and YPG. But they have just been heroic in their taking of territory back from the Islamic State, accompanied by the good old US of A and airstrikes supporting them. So I want to start off with this because this is uh, this is this is good news and this is going to it's going to be very interesting how it shapes the Middle East from here on out because they've been going after ISIS for so many years and so you know how are things going to be structured? I know the Kurds who have put a lot of blood and sweat and toil into this fight. Watch for them once ISIS is officially fallen. 
watch for them to be very vocal about saying, <coughs> state, state, <coughs> yeah, we should get a little state. And, and look, I, as we'll see in a minute, I am not aligned with the, the KPP politically at all. They're, or, I'm sorry, PKK, politically at all. They are socialist, communist, again, so I would have some big problems with their political I- ideology. On the other hand, would, it, would a state for them in northern Syria be a terrible thing? I don't think so. So let's so let's pop into this. This was the latest I could get, and this is coming from Al Jazeera, again, about 19 hours ago, and it is, you know, about noontime, February 22nd, 2019, so you be the judge if I actually, if, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm a little behind on the news. Here's what it says. Operation to destroy ISIL's final vestige hits evacuation snag. The operation to destroy ISIL's final urban base in Iraq and Syria hit a snag on Thursday as an expected evacuation of the remaining civilians there failed to happen for reasons unknown. They were a little quiet about it. The U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, which has steadily driven fighters down to the Euphrates River, has surrounded ISIL fighters at Baku's village in eastern Syria near the Iraq border, but do not want to mount a final attack until all civilians are out. The SDF had expected to pull the last non-combatants from Baku's on Thursday, but trucks it sent in left empty. So here's what the guy, the SDF spokesman, basically came out and said, we can't get into details, but today no civilians came out, is what he told Reuters. Not sure why, who knows what's going on inside of there, but unfortunately they sent sent some trucks in and civilians didn't come out. And basically, so Baguz is really all that remains for ISIS. Um, after it lost, you know, in 2007, I'm sorry, 2017, it lost Mosul and Raqqa, and it's just, it's been on the run ever since. So also the village's capture will basically bring the eight-year-old Syrian war to a new phase because Trump has pledged to withdraw troops and is, you know, supposedly going to leave a security vacuum that other powers are going to seek to fill, but we'll get into that in a minute to see how he is dealing with that because he has changed course a little bit in regard to a complete and total and absolute pullout. It looks like he is going to leave a small force in place, which will then hopefully encourage other European allies to do the same. Everybody can commit a couple hundred troops and we won't have an Iraq situation where the U.S. pulls out and ISIS appears. The SDF will attack Baghuz once the civilian evacuation was complete, said Bali. Several hundred fighters, mostly foreigners, are still believed inside the village, with many apparently planning to fight to the death. Now, why would they do that? If they're all but for sure gone and lost, why would they do that? Well, there are a few reasons, kind of like that old 
Bon Jovi song, I'm, I'm going down in a blaze of glory. So there could be something there. But there could also be an ideology that fuels the reason why they fight. And if they die in service of this ideology, there perhaps might be some rewards on the other side of the grave. So that's why this particular ideology is extremely, extremely dangerous. So unfortunately, it would be nice if these guys would just lay down their arms. But if they do that, they have less of a guarantee of heaven, whereas they have a promise of 70 virgins or whatever in the afterlife forever. What do you do? Go down in a blaze of glory and you get this just amazing, potentially, it's not guaranteed, but potentially this amazing afterlife, or you get caught and rot in a prison for the rest of your life or possibly executed. So there's an ideological reason behind this. So at least 10 people were killed and a number wounded on Thursday when a bomb blast hit a minibus carrying workers employed in a major oil installation in eastern Syria run by the SDF. Again, we're going to get the breakdown, SDF, YPG, PKK, uh, all of that. An an SDF spokesman said the attack killed mostly oil workers, as well as fighters in the village of Shiel, close to an oil field, acting as a base for the anti-IS force. ISIL cells are trying to stop our progress, Aiden and Afrin told AFP News Agency. Of course they are, but they're not going to. When you've got the SDF moving in, you've got U.S. backing you from the air, it's it's inevitable. All right, so, again, I, I was hoping, I was really, really, really hoping by the time of this broadcast I could come out and triumphantly announce that ISIS had officially fallen and, you know, the, the Kurds have taken over and there's a whole new phase. I mean, we're in a new phase, but it's not quite official yet. We know it's a matter of time. Surely by this time next week, by next Friday, ISIS would have fallen. And what's interesting, if you remember a couple, a couple of weeks ago, I shared an interview with a Kurdish commander who basically said, yeah, ISIS should be done within a month. And of course, the interview that I was reading was nine days old, so we're now basically at that point, and it looks like he predicted that fairly accurately. Again, I was hoping I'd be able to get on and just triumphantly announce the fall of ISIS officially, but not quite yet. Okay, so when ISIS falls, we know that Trump has already announced that he is going to pull Syrian uh, U.S. forces out of Syria, that we'd been there long enough, and it's time to pull out. So in that interim, the world has been going insane <laughs> at the idea of the U.S. pulling out our 2,000 troops that are there. And Trump's been going back and forth with, with his advisors, apparently. And so we have a bit, a bit of a change on that policy. And this is the latest of what, of what I could get. This is from Reuters, February 21st. U.S. to leave 200 American peacekeepers in Syria after pullout by Steve Holland. Good, nice, good, uh, good last name. And Idris Ali. 
The United States will leave a small peacekeeping group of 200 American troops in Syria for a period of time after a U.S. pullout, the White House said on Thursday, as President Donald Trump pulled back from a complete withdrawal. I tend to like this idea of at least leaving a small force there to prevent a power vacuum and to give that area time to become stable. And also is what we're going to see, it also encourages and and helps coalition members to also send a few hundred troops. And like I was saying, if everybody can send a few hundred troops, then we can have a good-sized army, everybody's contributing, and we're all helping to stabilize the region instead of everybody depending completely on the United States all the time. And that's one thing I love that I feel like I'm seeing that this minute that this administration is trying to do, whether it's with this or whether it's with NATO, hey, here's an idea. How about the U.S. not do everything? And let's let our coalition partners come alongside of us. 0.1% of your GDP going to military is not enough for you to be considered a NATO ally. That's ludicrous, right? We all chip in. We all pay our fair share. We all do our fair share. And that's what it's looking like they're trying to do here in here in Syria. All right, the article goes, article goes on to say, Trump in December ordered a withdrawal of the 2,000 American troops in Syria, saying they had defeated Islamic State militants there, even as U.S.-backed Syrian forces continued a final push against the group's last outpost. So I think they might be trying to bring up a contradiction there. Well, they're probably right. Yes, technically, IS was not, defeated geographically, but essentially they had been, and I think they knew it was just just a matter of time. But Trump has been under pressure for multiple advisors to adjust his policy to ensure the protection of Kurdish forces who supported the fight against Islamic State and who might now be threatened by Turkey and to serve as a bulwark against Iran's influence. The decision was announced after Trump spoke by phone to Turkish President Erdogan A White House statement said the two leaders agreed regarding Syria to, quote, continue coordinating on the creation of a potential safe zone. I am not a fan of Erdogan, (laughs) but I am not a fan of Joseph Stalin either, but apparently we needed his help to defeat Hitler. You just, you work with bad actors, you work with scoundrels at times for, for greater purposes. A senior administration official said Trump's decision had been in the works for some time. It was unclear how long the 200 troops would be expected to remain in the area or where exactly they would be deployed. There's really no need to publicize that information. Leaving even a small group of U.S. troops in Syria could pave the way for European allies to commit hundreds of troops to help set up and observe a potential safe zone in northeast Syria. And the commander of the U.S.-backed forces in Syria, they basically called for 1,000 to 1,500 international troops to remain to help fight Islamic State and expressed hope that the U.S. would halt plans for a, for a total pullout. So they're going to lose their geographic region, but they're, you're still going to, I'm sure, have these pockets of, of ISIS terrorists that are trying to blow people up on an individual or a small group basis or so forth. 
This is a clear direction to our allies and coalition members that we will be on the ground in some capacity, the senior U.S. administration official said. Until now, European allies have balked at providing troops unless they received a firm commitment that Washington was still committed to the region. Now, I find this kind of interesting because it really shows a a unhealthy <laughs> dependence upon the U.S. That if the U.S. is not there, well, then we're out of here. We're not doing it, right? The U.S. has to be there. Like it's so. If the U.S. is there, then we'll be there. It's in our interest to be there. But if the U.S. is there, it's suddenly not in our interest anymore to be there and to provide st- stability in a safe zone. I understand, trust me, I understand them wanting the U.S. there. But let's say we did. Let's say we did completely pull out. It's not in your interest to still create a coalition and be there. It's, it's, it's a little bizarre to me. I think nations are a little too dependent on us. Look, I love the U.S. It's my favorite country. I live here. But take care of your own stuff. All right. So the White House did not say where exactly its troops would be based. In addition to northeast Syria, officials have talked about the importance of keeping some troops at the strategic Tanf garrison on the Iraq-Jordan border. It's basically a desert. The Tanf garrison is basically a desert where Syria and Iraq and Jordan almost meet and what would be a real northern point of Jordan, kind of one of those places you could put you know, one hand in one country, one hand in another country, and, and a foot in another. But um, a U.S. official speaking on condition of anonymity said the initial plan was to have some troops in northeastern Syria and some at Tanf. The official, of course, said that the planning was ongoing. And, of course, it could change, just like the number of troops were that the U.S. was going to have in Syria is going to change. It's just that's the nature of the beast. But it's probably a good idea. I'm... I'm not an adventurer when it comes to our U.S. military. They should only be where they absolutely have to be. I understand. I think most Americans understand that's going to include some foreign soil. But I love it. If we can get most of our troops out and get other countries to do their fair share and to make up for that, and then the ultimate goal is achieved or we can maintain peace in the region, booyah! <laughs> Okay, real, real quick, yeah, because I had mentioned this. Uh, I want to talk about the Kurds for a minute. Who the heck are they? I mentioned this article a few weeks ago. It's in the Washington Times. It'll be linked again with the show notes of this podcast. And remember, you can subscribe at iTunes. Still working on the Google Play Store. Not quite sure what's going on there, so I'm going to have to uh, spend a little time figuring that out. But it is on iTunes, and so... You can subscribe there and also go to midisnoosebrief.com to get links to all of the stories discussed on today's show so you can look it up for yourself and do your own research and don't have to take my word for it. Okay, deciphering confusion about the Kurds. What's good about this, it's kind of a long article. There's just a couple paragraphs in it that I want to get to. Uh, You know, there's policy and different things in here. But I just want for you guys, because I know that it's confusing to me, let's break it down a little bit. And because we've got all these different 
acronyms and then the acronyms don't actually match up with what the acronym stands for. You're like, okay, what is this? Of course, when you're dealing with different languages. The article says, even analysts and journalists appear to be confused about the Kurds, including the nomenclature used to describe them. The Kurds are a Middle Eastern minority spread out from Syria in the west through Turkey and Iraq to Iran in the east and further divided into various political groupings. But this is not what the foreign policy establishment is referring to in the Syria debate. Rather, they are talking about a specific Kurdish political institution in northern Syria, the Democratic Union Party, PYD. So, isn't that great? Democratic Union Party should be DUP, but no, it's PYD. And it's military wing, the People's Protection Units, YPG. Again, more help. This is the Syrian franchise of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, (laughs) which has been at war with Turkey for 35 years and is a U.S.-designated terrorist group inspired by Marxist doctrine. Boy, don't we love this revival of Marxism here in the United States. See, this is why I, I need a separate <laughs> a separate podcast for uh, domestic-based stuff, but I'm not going to get into that here. So basically, here, here's what we've got. The overall group is the PKK, right? The Kurdistan Workers' Party. They've been at war with Turkey for 35 years. It's a U.S.-designated terrorist group inspired by Marxist doctrine, right? So that's overall the PKK. Then you've got the PYD, the Democrat Democratic Union Party, which is basically the PKK's political institution in northern Syria. All right, so PKK, overall for the Kurds, PYD, the Democratic Union Party, which is the PKK's political arm in northern Syria. Then you have the YPG, which basically is the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces. So you have the YPG, the People's Protection Unit, the which is the military wing of the PYD, the Democratic Union Party, um, and also the SDF, which is military wing as well. I don't know that they're exactly one and the same, but they're both military wings of the PYD. So PKK overall, PYD is the political arm in northern Syria, and then you've got the YPG and SDF that are the military wings. I I hope that helps. Again, the full article is going to be linked over at MideastNewsBrief.com along with the the podcast. So take a look at that if you want to learn more about the Kurds. While we're on the topic of ISIS, (sighs) I'm sure by now you've all heard of the ISIS bride. This was a lady who decided to go and join ISIS. And a U.S., a lady out of the U.S. who decided to go and join ISIS, who married three different jihadis, had a kid, spoke even out on Twitter against the U.S., pro-ISIS, pro-destruction of America, just as, as bad as can be as bad as can be, 
And now, interestingly, now that the caliphate has basically fallen and the show's over and the vacation is done, now she has suddenly had a change of heart. She suddenly regrets. She just, she just couldn't be more upset and disappointed that she joined ISIS. And now suddenly she's had this big change of heart and she wants to come back to the U.S. There's a pretty good piece by Andrew, Andrew McCarthy in National Review about this. It's an indict the ISIS bride. I'm not going to go through it all here because we're already already fairly into the podcast and I've got a lot of stuff to get to. But he argues that, look, she might actually have a case legally for coming back to the U.S. Why is that? Well, because even though she was the daughter of diplomats and she was born to a diplomat, apparently... When she was born, 30 days earlier, Yemen had released her father, the diplomat, from from its service. And so basically, she could claim the same kind of status that illegal aliens here in the U.S. claim, that basically birthright citizenship. If they're born here, even if they're born to illegal immigrants, they have full U.S. citizenship, which is kind of an insane policy on the on the domestic level, because you're basically you basically have created a policy that promotes breaking our laws. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But that's but that's basically what they're claiming. And Andrew McCarthy, who is very pro-Trump, he is very conservative. He's saying, look, she might actually have a legal case. So here's what you need to do. Indict her. Make sure to indict her. And here's what he said. I had a column in the New York Post yesterday morning about the so-called ISIS bride, Hoda Mathana, who was detained in a Syrian refugee camp and now pleading to come back home to her family in Alabama. Actually, the American Center for Law and Justice had a great show on this yesterday, Thursday, February 21st, 2019, specifically on the ISIS bride, the legality. Uh, they... Uh, now again, ACLJ Jay Seculo is a lawyer to the president, so they're going to get they're going to argue that side. But they also shared just some great reasons why why she doesn't need to be staying, especially given the fact. I mean, she is a traitor of the highest order, joining a terrorist group that would make that has made Al Qaeda wince, and now wants wants to come home, wants entrance back home. It's amazing she's still alive. Okay, where was I? I argued that, despite the fact that she has treasonously waged war against our country, she had a right to enter because she was, according to the facts available at the time, a natural-born American citizen. Okay, I'm going to skip down here, but it's worth taking a closer look at the citizen question itself. To my mind concept of citizenship implies not just the benefits of being a full-fledged member of the body politic, but also a duty of fealty to the nation. In a rational world, then, a citizen who made war against the United States would be stripped of its citizenship. But of course, that's in a rational, (laughs) that's in a rational world. 
McCarthy continues, Alas, that is not the law. As I related in the post column, Supreme Court precedent holds that natural-born citizens may not have their citizenship revoked without their consent. This is in contrast to naturalized citizens who may have their citizenship revoked if they join a subversive organization within five years of being naturalized, but this is not relevant to Muthana's case. Reports indicate that Muthana, the daughter of Yemeni immigrants, was born in New Jersey in 94. For the most part, she appears to have grown up in Alabama. As we've noted here, when the issue is debated from time to time, the prevailing interpretation of the 14th Amendment generally provides for birthright citizenship. If you were born here, you are a citizen, no matter what. So then he goes into the kind of what our what I already mentioned about her father being a diplomat. So if a diplomat's child is born here, she is not a natural-born citizen, citizen and thus does not have U.S. citizenship. However, if he was terminated from his post 30 days before his daughter was born, then she's basically born as like an illegal immigrant. Pompeo's, uh, Pompeo's taken a pretty hard-nosed position on this. And Trump and Mike Pompeo have come out and blatantly said she's not allowed into the country. Her, lo- uh, her lawyer, who is the head of the Can- Council of American Islamic Relations in Florida, is, I, I mean, uh, that's why, that's one reason you need to watch the ACLJ show from yesterday, because it was ve- they play a lot of clips of this guy, and it was very telling, t- telling how much he sympathizes with this terrorist is just, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. That being said, basically what McCarthy is encouraging the U.S. to do, indict her, charge her with treason. So that if she does end up back on the shores because of you know, the court proceedings or whatever, fine. But the moment she steps foot here in the U.S., she's... She's in jail, she's tried, and really, I mean, she's, she's got to be charged with treason. You can't let someone join a foreign terrorist organization, the worst of the worst foreign terrorist organizations to boot, and then expect them to get anything less than like 800 lifetime sentences. Because if we go easy on this lady, it's going to encourage more American citizens to join ISIS. That's all I'm going to say on that. Again, I'll have this article linked at mideastnewsbrief.com. I am going to now touch on some sad news out of France. Some sad news, but with that, I feel like there's a little bit of good news in there because of how France and Macron is responding to it. But this is just deplorable. This is from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Nearly 100 French-Jewish gravestones vandalized with swastikas on day of marches against anti-Semitism. Could you imagine? <laughs> Who does that? Who does that? Goes to a gravestone of a Jew. Spray paints a swastika on it. Someone did that. Someone thought this would be a good idea and went and did that. 
Almost 100 gravestones at a Jewish cemetery in France were discovered vandalized with swastikas hours before the start of the marches, Tuesday against the recent rise in anti-Semitic attacks in the country. Boy, if there was ever an excuse to fly somewhere and go on a march, I, I would love to be able to be a part of that. French President Emmanuel Macron visited the cemetery in the eastern French village of Quatzenheim, near the border with Germany, on Tuesday afternoon and promised that his government would take action. So basically, French police reported last week that anti-Semitic acts had risen by 74% in 2018 over 2017. And this has basically spurred 14 political parties to gather a protest rally in response. And this includes Macron's Les Républiques en Marche, maybe that's how you say it, and the CRIF Jewish Umbrella Group, and they called on French citizens to rally, basically to come together and say no to anti-Semitism. Which, I mean, that's good. And I'm going to get into more about Macron in a second, but, you know, I've heard it said before, what's the difference between the anti-Semitism of the 30s and 40s in Europe and the anti-Semitism of today in Europe? One of the differences, on a positive side, one of the differences is that the leaders are not agreeing with it. The leaders publicly are denouncing it. So that, that is a good sign. However, as time goes on, and as Islamic immigration, if it continues to increase, but not just immigration increasing, birth rates increased, and then depending on which sects of Islam are there and promote anti-Semitism, that's a whole other battle that they didn't have in the 30s and 40s in Europe. They just had European hatred of the Jews and of just idiotic ideology that promoted that, now you've got quite an Islamic influence in Europe where anti-Semitism is it's actually hard-coded. It's, it's part of the doctrine of the Quran and the Hadith. And now some Islamic groups reject anti-Semitism, but others do not. Many others do not. And they recognize that it is a part of their, a part of their tradition, part of the Quran. When Jews and Christians are called the worst of creatures, in one verse in the Quran and then in the Hadith, there's that famous saying that Jews will hide behind the rocks, and then the rocks will say, oh, Muslim, there's a Jew behind this rock, kill the rock, or whatever. I mean, so, I mean, some of these groups, some of these people, take that stuff seriously, and it's part of their ideology. So, I'm glad to see that European uh, Europe's leaders are speaking out against it, but over the next decades and as time goes on, it's it's not just the indigenous Europeans we have to think about. We have to think about those immigrating and the children of immigrants being born in Europe. How is their anti-Semitism going, going to affect the Jews? In response to the cemetery vandalism, Israel's immigration minister... Yoav Gallant, in a tweet, called on French Jews to, quote, come home and immigrate to Israel. I wouldn't blame him. I mean, if I was a Jew living in Europe right now, I would, (laughs) 
I would strongly, strongly consider that. Quote, the desecration of the, of the graves in the Jewish cemetery in France is reminiscent of dark days in the history of the Jewish people. Boy, is it. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in a statement Tuesday called the vandalism shocking and said French and European leaders must take a strong stand against the plague of anti-Semitism. And that is what it is. It is just a terrible, terrible plague. It infects people. It's idiotic. It's stupid. It has no basis whatsoever. It's just hatred. It's just hatred. And I believe until Christ comes back, this is the kind of stuff that we're going to have to deal with, unfortunately. But I would prefer to deal with less than more. So thank God. And again, I'm not any kind of Macron fanboy. But if he does something that I agree with, and if he speaks out against anti-Semitism, I can't help but say, but say, yeah, thank you. This is from the Telegraph. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, warns Emmanuel Macron. I'm honestly a little surprised by this, (laughs) that he would come out and say something is it okay on on radio when you can hear my papers shuffling? I don't know. It, to me, it, it kind of feels like it it adds to the authenticity <laughs> of the experience. But I don't want to have to go back in and edit all that out. So you're just going to hear some papers rustling. And I don't know, maybe it, it adds some charm to the broadcast. Okay, totally uh, opposite subject. But so here's what the article says in The Independent. France is to recognize anti-Zionism which is the denial of the state of Israel as a form of anti-Semitism in response to a surge in acts against Jews not seen since the Second World War. Now, keep in mind, this is not some conservative right-wing administration in the U.S. saying this. This is France. This is Macron not necessarily known for right-wing conservatism. So this could be actually very helpful if the U.S. administration wanted to come out and say something similar. Oh, you're calling us crazy. Well, is Macron crazy? I don't know. Just some for all of the, uh, of course, all of the administrative uh, administration representatives listening to this podcast, you know, that's some free advice. (laughs) All right. Emmanuel Macron, the French president, also promised new legislation in May to fight hate speech on the internet, which could see platforms such as Facebook and Twitter fined for every minute they fail to take down racist or violent content. Macron, speaking at the annual meeting of France's largest Jewish organization, CRIF, said that France and other countries in Europe had recently witnessed, quote, a resurgence of anti-Semitism that is probably unprecedented since World War II. We have denounced it a lot, adopted plans, passed laws sometimes, but we haven't been able to act efficiently, he said. So basically, I mean, he's stopped short of calling for new legislation. He did say that the working definition of anti-Semitism that's drawn up by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance would help guide police forces on what anti-Semitism is. And it basically stipulates stipulates that anti-Semitism can take the form of 
and this is a quote, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination. Example, by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. I'm going to have to do a whole show about that, about the BDS, about this whole idea that Israel is an apartheid state. I've been to Israel. I've been there. I didn't see any Arab bathrooms and Jewish bathrooms, Arab water fountains, Jewish water fountains. I didn't see Arabs can't go over here and Jews can't go over here and Christians can't go over here and all of this garbage that when when you if you're going if you're going to equate apart uh, the apartheid of South Africa with what's going on in Israel, you're going to have to do better because it's not the same thing. It's absolutely not the same thing. The reality is at the end of the day that Jews need a state of their own. Why do they need a state of their own? Well, we kind of just talked about it because anti-Semitism is on the rise. It's on the rise in Europe. It's on the rise here in the U.S., sadly, and I will speak out against it. Again, we've got Ilan Omar and what's going on in the U.S. Congress that's just despicable. And, of course, we saw that the probably one of the most notorious anti-Semites Louis Farrakhan came out and was supporting her, and oh, everything's great. This is, it's just, it's absolutely insane. Look, anti Semitism is on the rise, and the Jews need a state for their safety. The Jews need a state. So if they need to get out of Dodge and want to go somewhere where they actually have some protection and their Judaism isn't going to get them killed, they need a freaking state. And you're going to call that racism because they're trying to protect themselves? You're going to call that racism when Arabs can serve in the Israeli Knesset, when there is nothing in the state of Israel that Arabs cannot do and they're not discriminated against? Now, now look, are there Jews in Israel that are racist toward Arabs? I'm sure there are some, right? Just like there are still white people here in the U.S. that are racist against blacks. Even though institutional racism here in the U.S. is dead. But you can't legislate hatred out of somebody's heart, right? All you can do as a government is reform your laws to promote equality. That's what Israel has done. That's what the U.S. has done. But we can't guarantee that there aren't any Jews who just have a hatred of Arabs, just like we can't guarantee that there aren't any Arabs who don't have any hatred of Jews. All the Israeli government can do is create just laws that provide for equality for all of its citizens. And you're going to call it apartheid because the West Bank and Israel are divided? You're going to call it apartheid because they're not going to grant some kind of right of return so that millions of of Arabs can flood back into Israel? and basically destroy the Jewish state and destroy the very thing that they're trying to create so that the Jews themselves can have a a, a homeland, can have a safe haven. And look, again, the Palestinians, they have been offered states in the past. They have been offered everything they could possibly hope for in a peace deal, in the real world, in a real world peace deal. Walked away. They walked away. As is commonly said, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Okay, I wasn't planning on going on that tirade, but good night. Israel is not a racist 
area. Look, I've been to Old City Jerusalem. You've got the Jewish quarter. You've got the Arab quarter. You've got the Christian quarter. And you've got the Armenian quarter. Okay. I could go as a Christian. I could go into any of those quarters, and I did. It was fascinating. Go sometime to Israel if you can. I want to go back as soon as possible. It's a great experience. But nobody was barred from going into any of those quarters. Where was I? <laughs> Quote, anti-Zionism is one of the modern forms of anti-Semitism, said Mr. Macron. Behind the negation of Israel's existence, what is hiding is the hatred of Jews. Such guidelines in no way infringed on people's right to criticize the Israeli government and its policies, he said. Look, the Palestinians want a Palestinian state that is Jewridine, or however you say it, Jew-free, essentially, except for, like, they want all Jews out. Except for just, you know, there's a few that would, would be able to stay that because of something several decades ago or something. Otherwise, they want a Jew-free Palestine. And you're going to sit here and tell me that Israel is racist? Imagine if Netanyahu, again, if he came out and was like, when there's, an, when there's a, the two-state solution, there won't be any Arabs in Palestine. The world would explode. Yet, Mahmoud Abbas, president of the PA, can get away with that. Absolutely in- incredible. So, you know, they're going to be doing some digital enforcement in France, and I get that. I hope that they're careful. I'm big, 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 big free speech. Of course, I'm also a big, 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 big anti, anti-Jew. So, look, I hate, hate speech towards Jewish people or any people. But at the same time, I hope they have some common sense policies to where they're not inhibiting free speech. And sadly, with free speech comes people who say evil, idiotic things. But at the same time, the whole idea behind free speech is that you have a free exchange of ideas and that the good ideas can, in the marketplace of ideas, win. So I'm, I'm wary of internet censorship. And basically, unless there are specific calls for violence or glorification of violence, that's pretty much the only thing I, I personally am for when it comes to censorship. Look, France is France, and they're going to be their own, their own people, and they're going to make their own laws. I just, I just hope that the free speech of the good guys isn't stifled in some way because of the free speech against the bad guys. But I will say, go Macron. Ain't the, the idea that the Israelis cannot have their own state is anti-Semitism, is, I mean, wow. I'm, 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 I'm shocked. I'm shocked that he come out and he made such a bold stance. And look, it is. If you don't think that the, that the Jews should be able to have their own state and have self-determination, yet those same people are going to believe the Palestinians can, that the Jordanians can, that the Saudi Arabians can, that the Egyptians can, but the Jews can't, Again, when there's a double standard against the Jews, you know it's anti-Semitism. And you can't blame a people that have been historically 
oppressed in horrific, un- unimaginable ways just this past century for wanting their own dang state. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the Palestinian Authority a little bit more. I always print out too many articles. I can never get to everything. I can never get to everything. So I'm going to go through some go through some stuff real quick. PA to cut civil servant salaries after Israeli tax freeze over terror stipends. Like I said in the intro, the Palestinians are feeling the pinch of their horrific pay to slay policy. The Palestinian finance minister on Thursday announced salary cuts for civil servants days after Israel said it would withhold tens of millions of dollars in tax transfers to the Palestinian Authority. Israel's security cabinet on Sunday approved the freezing of $138 million over the PA's payments to Palestinians jailed by Israel for terrorism and violence and to the families of dead terrorists. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Where is that? I printed out that article again to have in front of me. Oh, and there's more on this. <laughs> uh, you can't make this stuff up. But, so the Palestinian Authority basically acknowledged that its annual budgets for these payments to the families of terrorists, either wounded or slain, amounted to NIS $1.2 billion, which I think last week or the week before I said $1.2 billion. I misspoke. It's NIS. What does NIS stand for? New Israeli Shekel, $1.2 billion. So in the realm of 300-something million is how much the Palestinian Authority has paid to terrorists to promote terrorism. How are they even, how do they even have any status at all at the United Nations? It's, It's not even a secret. I heard someone say, you know, there's, there's the debate here in the U.S., you know, you have those who want to get the U.S. out of the U.N. and the U.N. out of the U.S. But then you got that, like, look, you got all these nations here in our home hometown. <laughs> you know, we're spying on all of them. Like, we can spy on all these people so easily. I don't know if that's the reason why we keep it, but uh, the good old U.N., the good old U.N. It said last week that if Israel deducts the funds... The PA will not accept any of the money Israel transfers to it under the terms of the Oslo Accords, more than $100 million a month. So they're feeling the pinch. They're having to cut salaries. But what's interesting is no matter what, this is why they're standing their ground. This is where the Palestinian is, Palestinian Authority is planting their flags. And boy, I tell you, I feel bad for Palestinians because I love the Palestinian people. And please do not mistake my unbelievable frustration with their leadership with the people themselves. I'm a Christian, called to love all people, and I love the Palestinian people. Even though, even though, you can look at surveys, and that seem to really, a lot of them seem to support this kind of stuff, we still have to love and hope for the best for those people. But here's where they're, here is where they're planting their flag. Here's where they're standing their ground. 
the cuts will not apply to salaries paid to pensioners and families of martyrs, wounded, or prisoners, he added, adding that wages below NIS 2000, $550, would also not be affected. So we're going to cut, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut salaries of civil servants, but we are not going to stop one shekel of money going to the families of terrorists. They're staying in their ground. And maybe it's through all of this, perhaps it's through all of this, that you know we've got the Trump, Kushner, Greenblatt peace plan. It's coming. And maybe, maybe over these next few months, the PA is going to be squeezed so much that they're going to be forced into this peace plan. I know if the Palestinians can, they'll reject it. But maybe they've got some magic wand, <laughs> some magic wand to make the, the PA uh, come into the agreement. I am not holding my breath. As I said last week, if I did, I would croak. Under a 1994 agreement, Israel collects around $190 million each month in customs duties levied on goods destined for Palestinian markets that transit through Israeli ports. The money it then transfers to the PA is the authority's most important source of revenue. What can you say? That's what they're going to do. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122.6, may they prosper those who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within their palaces. Okay, uh, one more thing on this. These are the people that Israel has to deal with on their southern border, right? We have issues here in the U.S. along our southern border, right? We've got coyotes, which that's kind of the, probably one of those mild things, but you've got human traffickers. You've got drug lords, drug smugglers. We've got jihadists, all these people trying to get over into our southern border, which Spoiler alert, I guess if you were curious of my view of whether or not we should build the wall, this is what Israel has to deal with on their southern border. These are the kind of people, of course, you know, on their southern border, they've got Gaza. Gaza is run by Hamas, a terrorist organization, along with Hezbollah in Lebanon, which Iran loves to pump money into. I mean, if we thought with the 2015 nuclear deal and us pumping billions of dollars to Iran, that they weren't going to take that and go on, uh, as the foreign minister of Iran likes to say, go on about Israel, go on adventures with that money. I mean, I use the term adventure very loosely. Then we're crazy. But we did the deal. And we did the deal when there were certain sites we couldn't even inspect. Iran's like, no, you can't go there. You can't go there. You can't go there. But somehow we can certify that they're not building a nuclear arsenal? IDF, Gaza children, this is sad. Okay, this is sad. It, it, it's, you know, I, I remember seeing this. Uh, I remember seeing this advertising campaign. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I uh, saw this advertising campaign once called The Lottery of Life, and it showed like some kids on a lake in Kentucky or who knows where, jumping in and swimming. And it showed other kids in some third world country and the poverty and all that. 
And it really it was a it was a very effective advertising campaign. I forget who it was for. Oh, maybe not that effective, <laughs> but uh, uh, it was several years ago that I saw it. And I just think about these kids, not just in Ga- Gaza, but also in the West Bank. I mean, they're being bred to hate. The lottery of life. I mean, that's just the reality. Gaza children being promised NIS 300, new Israeli shekel, $383, if injured at border protests. How sick and demented do you have to be? Israeli security forces have recently noticed Hamas sending children as young as eight years old to the front lines of protests along the Gaza-Israel border, the IDF said on Thursday. They have also lately heard unidentified operatives on loudspeakers promising children at the border $83 if they get injured, the army said, confirming a previous unsourced report on the Cannes Public Broadcaster. A Hamas official in Gaza did not respond to a request for comment about whether the terror group sent children as young as eight to the front lines. He did not answer whether it had promised kids money for sustaining injuries. Since they started last year, right, because protests started back in April of last year, April 2018, since they started last year, some 3,000 children have been injured in the protests, an official in the Hamas-run health ministry said in a phone call. They not only don't care if kids get injured, they want children to get injured. Why? Because then you've got all of these all the, in, the international press taking pictures and then publishing those pictures and making it look like the Israeli government is just indiscriminately targeting children, which is ludicrous. But they have no problem with it. There was even, I don't know if you guys saw this, but I saw this last year, especially when all this was, was going on. There was a mom whose baby had died. Why did this baby die? Because this Gazan mom had brought her baby to the protest where tires are burning, Molotov cocktails are being thrown, incendiary balloons, and all of this stuff, and the baby dies. And now suddenly Israel is this evil monster because this Gazan mom brought her baby to a a potential war zone, which in some ways was a war zone. And Israel's demonized for it? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And as a Christian, I believe God is not too big to even heal the Gaza Strip. That God is not too big, God, I'm sorry, God is not too small to affect that area for good. What was the verse that I shared? What was the verse that I shared? The very, very first podcast out of Isaiah 19, that there will be a highway in that day, in the last times, there will be a highway, Assyria, Israel, Egypt. I believe that is coming. And look, we're going to see more and more and more terrible stuff. Terrorism is not going to end overnight. I still have a just, you call it a fool's optimism for the region. I don't care. I serve a big God. 
And I know he is working all of these things after the counsel of his will, and that we will see the ultimate redemption of this region and the whole world. All right, so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Real quick, this was interesting. Elections in Israel, April 9th. Real quick, after marathon, uh, marathon talks, Gantz, Lapid, Forge, Alliance, and challenge to Netanyahu. Look, Netanyahu's the guy to beat. <laughs> Let's just be honest. He's the guy to beat. Netanyahu is just, he's good. I mean, you got to admit, whether you like Netanyahu or not, he is good. And he is popular. So some centrist parties basically came together to form. It's going to be, it's kind of interesting. They say if they win, then they're going to kind of switch off prime minister, which kind of reminds me of what Gerald Gerald Ford wanted, but like a co-presidency with Ronald Reagan. That, that would have been interesting had, had that happened. Yeah, so kind of look for that. I'll follow that. I'm just going to briefly mention that. You know, Netanyahu's the guy to beat. I doubt he's going to lose. Of course, you never know. I don't have the crystal ball to tell me. Not that I would consult a crystal ball. But it, it'll be interesting to see kind of uh, kind of how that how that shakes out. It's just going to get more and more heated. We're, we're, I mean, it's it's close. It's less than two months away the election. Now, th- this was interesting from Al Jazeera. India reiterates plan to stop sharing water with Pakistan. New Delhi's move to halt water flows to Pakistan is to pressure its neighbor after a militant attack in Kashmir. An Indian government minister reiterated on Thursday the country's plan to restrict the flow of water to Pakistan from its share of rivers the latest effort by New Delhi to pressure its neighbor after an attack in Kashmir. Our government has decided to stop our share of water, which used to flow to Pakistan. Nitin Gadkari, Transport and Water Resources Minister, said in a tweet, he added that the country would divert water from eastern rivers and supply it to its people in Jammu and Gadkari. I'm sorry, Jammu and Kashmir and Punjab states. Gadkari's comments underline New Delhi's anger over an attack by a Pakistan-based group last week in the disputed region of Kashmir, which killed 42 parliamentary police. It's awful. India has accused Pakistan of not doing enough to control such groups, while Pakistan has denied involvement. So the sharing of water supplies actually goes back to this 1960 Indus Water Treaty. Or it's basically a sharing of water supplies from the Indus River and its tributaries between the two countries. Uh, in recent years, India has begun ambitious irrigation plans and construction of many upstream dams, saying its use of upstream water is strictly in line with the treaty. So it was basically after an attack in Kashmir in 2016, that's when India began to fast-track development of some of the dam projects, and then tensions between the the two, com- the two countries started escalating. But, of course, pa- Pakistan rejects that they had any involvement whatsoever in that, which, of course, they're going to. But, you know, we'll see. <clears throat> it, it's kind of hard for someone like myself to know if that's actually true or not. But there, there is some tension between India and Pakistan. They've been rivals for a long time, for decades. But uh, hopefully it doesn't cause any rifts or uh, or not any risk, but rather it doesn't cause uh, any, any more violence or, or tension between the two. 
So I am actually going to end the podcast with something kind of cool. I can't help but marvel at the technological, the medicinal, the agricultural developments that come out of this tiny nation, basically the size of New Jersey. There is one point in the state of Israel that is literally about eight miles wide. (laughs) That's like from me to my closest grocery store. You know, I mean, it's just, wow, if you can even fathom that. This tiny little country has just produced some of the most stellar technology and advancements and and innovation. And I I, I can't help but celebrate that. I my theology and what I believe, I believe God brought the Jews back in 48, and I believe he's continuing to bring them back. I think the anti-Semitism we're seeing in Europe, in the U.S., is going to be one way that it, that it happens more and more. But I, I, I just, I'm just impressed constantly. I, you know, I, I believe I spoke about an article a few weeks ago where a pharmaceutical firm came out and said that, yeah, we should have the cure for cancer in about a year. <laughs> what? What? I don't know. Was he just trying to get free press? But the problem is, if you say something like that and you don't deliver, you look like a total fool. It's certainly not going to help your medical credentials. So I, <laughs> I was like, man, you better have something. If it's not a cure, you better freaking have something. Or your credibility is way down. But check this out. Israeli Moonlander launches successfully from Cape Canaveral. This tiny little nation makes a makes a moon lander. Come on. Pretty cool looking, too. Look it up. Or I'll have the link. You can look it up. I'll have the link at midisnewsbrief.com. This is from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, February 21st, 2019. An Israeli spacecraft is officially on its way to the moon. The lunar lander built by Space IL, an Israeli organization hoping to send a craft to the moon, successfully launched aboard a SpaceX rocket from Cape Canaveral in Florida Thursday night. Now check this out. It reaches the moon and lands successfully. I'm sorry, if it reaches the moon and lands successfully, it will make Israel the fourth country ever after the Soviet Union, the U.S., and China to land a spacecraft on the moon. How about that? U.S., Soviet Union, China, huge nations, and itty-bitty Israel doing what only three large nations before it has done. Pretty cool. Do you think? I don't know. I don't know about you guys. I kind of have a feeling that God is doing some work in this itty-bitty little Jewish state. After separating from the rocket, Space IL craft named Bereshit, Hebrew for Genesis, will travel around Earth in progressively larger orbits. I just, I love seeing biblical names out in outer space. It seems the U.S. is focused on the names of uh, Greek gods and, and so forth, so it's, it's good, to see, good to see something from, from the uh, biblical narrative. Hebrew for Genesis will travel around Earth in progressively larger orbits, eventually entering the moon's orbit and touching down for a landing there, that is expected to occur on April 11th. So Reuven Rivlin came out and he said, President Reuven Rivlin, 
Once it seemed imaginary. Today, this is reality. He said in a video after the launch, Bereshit, landing on the moon is a giant step for all Israel. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Maybe a little illusion there. This is a first-rate technological, scientific, and educational project. Good job, guys, <laughs> for what it's worth. Good job. That is pretty, pretty incredible. So I wanted to end-end the show the, with the quote of the week, which I missed last week. Sorry about that. But it is something I want to do. I love, want to know a little bit about me. I love proverbs, maxims, pithy sayings and quotes, whether they're from the Bible or worldly wisdom or I, I just, I do. I love it. There's something, there's something about it. This is really, this really isn't a proverb. This is more of just a quote, but just so y'all know, one of the reasons why I like doing this is because I, I actually collect quotes. <laughs> I have a Google Doc and I just, quotes that I find I like, I collect them and I categorize them by subject. I do, I'm just a big dork when it comes to that. But also part of the reason why is my memory is not the greatest. So if I'm going to remember any of the quotes that I read, I'm going to have to review them like 30 times a piece. But that's neither here nor there. This quote of the week is from Carolyn Glick, who I mentioned last week. Uh, again, this was the other mistake that I made. She, I said that she wrote a book called The One State Solution. That's not what it's called. It's called The Israeli Solution, A One State Plan for Peace in the Middle East. Again, I don't know if I agree with this plan. I am working through the book, but uh, uh, it's definitely worth a read. Some very, very good historical information in it. But this was a speech that she gave. This was a quote from a speech that she gave to the Zionist Organization of America, and this is what she said. We consistently use the term Zionist as a dirty word, as if supporting the liberation and self-determination of a historically oppressed minority in its homeland is something to be ashamed of. This is relevant, right? With what happened in France and with Macron basically coming out and saying Zionism is uh, to be against Zionism, is to basically be anti-Semitic. He's, he's, what he's trying to do, or, what, or perhaps unwittingly, but he's putting this term into the vernacular into the accepted vernacular of the world. This is not a dirty word. This is actually a good thing. Zionism is a good thing. And, and that's what it takes. It takes leaders to come out and basically say, this is right, this is good. And I'm glad he did that. Let me read it again. We consistently use the term Zionist as a dirty word, as a supporting the liberation and self-determination of a historically oppressed minority in its homeland is something to be ashamed of. Well said, well said, and I will have the link to this as well as the links to all of the all of the stories discussed today at midisnewsbrief.com. Be sure to go there and subscribe to the podcast. And that will do it for this week's edition of Midi Snooze Brief. Thank you guys so much for joining in, and we will see y'all next week. <laughs>